Well, I want to read our scripture uh, passage for us this morning that's found in Genesis chapter 2, um, which is on page 2 of your Bible. And one of these nice things about these few weeks of being in the early chapters of Genesis, it's not hard to find where we're at in the Bible. We usually have been on page 1 or 2. Uh, so in this, this week, we're uh, on page 2 of your Pew Bible. And uh, we're going to begin by reading in verse 9, and then we'll uh, jump ahead to verses 15 through 17. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, and then 15 through 17. And also, if you uh, are newer, you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible with you as a gift from us. We'd love for everyone to have a copy of the scriptures of their very own. Um, So if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you uh, from us as a gift. We'll hear now God's word from Genesis chapter 2. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray now as we go to this. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us your word as a as a gift, as an enduring um, witness to yourself. And we pray now that by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, you would speak to us afresh as we, uh, as it points us to Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, all throughout this series, you know, we've been mentioning this along the way, uh, we are uh, doing something a little unique, and that is uh, giving you the opportunity to text in questions that you may have. So as you're listening, um, there's a phone number, it's in the, the monthly or the, uh, the weekly update uh, emails, I might even have a slide, I'm not sure if I do, uh, but if you stored that phone number in your phone, um, text in questions that you have, and then on Monday afternoons between 3 and 4, we do a little Facebook Live uh, video with a couple of the people from the various campuses that taught in this text, and we just try to respond to as many of those questions as we can. We've had lots of great questions so far, and um, many of you have watched those videos, so it's just a way for you to participate uh, in this a little bit uh, as we go through here. So text in questions that you have, um, and then we can, uh, can do those during that Facebook Live video time. Well, as I was thinking about the passage of Scripture this week, I was reminded that there are increasingly uh, frequent moments as a parent where I'm beginning to see myself, both for better and uh, also definitely for worse, uh, on display, reflected in my kids. And so um, our daughters, Lucy and Isla, they end up being sort of living, walking, talking mirrors of, of me in so many ways. And I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago when Lucy uh, put on her explainer voice, which she definitely has gotten from her dad. Uh, this, let me, let me explain to you how the world works kind of a voice. And uh, it was a Sunday afternoon and I was folding laundry uh, and Lucy was chatting with me and she was just kind of chatting along and all of a sudden like the way she, the tone of her voice changed and she started using her explainer voice. And she, you know, like, there's just something, Dad, about the world that you need to understand, and I'm going to explain it to you. So she said, Dad, she said, Dad, people do what they want to do. Uh, they don't do what other people want to do. They, wa- they do what they want to do. 
and I, I do what I want to do. But sometimes you guys don't let me do what I want to do. But people do what they want to do, but you guys won't let me do what I want to do. But I want to do what I want to do. And then she sort of paused as if to say, so, so what say you, Father, to this? Uh, why, Dad? Why won't you let me do what I want to do? She kept asking why, which actually in that moment I was really thankful for a lot of this embrace the phase kind of training that Annalyn has done. We have a little card that tells about three and four-year-olds, and one of the things they do is they ask why a lot, sometimes just to get more information, not necessarily because they have this infinite chain of reasoning they want to trace back. They just want more information. So take that class. It's been really helpful stuff for us. Uh, but at the core of what Lucy was articulating is a narrative that shapes each one of us and our culture deeply, and that is that I decide what's right. Because basically what Lucy was saying is, people do what they want to do, Dad. I want to do what I want to do. I want to decide what's right for me. And so this morning, as we take a closer look at this narrative that our story tell, that our culture tells, the story that I decide what's right, we want to ask the question, is that a story worth living? Is that a story worth living? And that's what we've titled the series this fall as we've looked at these different stories. And we're asking the question, are these stories that our culture tells, are these stories worth living? Because we are surrounded by stories, stories of, of what's good, um, how success is defined, what's beautiful, um, what we should care about, what love looks like. All of these things exist in the stories that our culture tells. And regardless of our faith background or lack of faith background, these stories uh, that our culture tells are deeply influential for all of us. But so often, we aren't even aware of them. They're just so commonplace. They're just baseline assumptions. We don't even think about them. Um, but this fall, we've been trying to raise some of those things and ask the question, are these stories stories worth living? And so this uh, story that we're looking at this week is the kind of the narrative, of, I decide what's right. And we just were, all throughout the series, we've just been asking the question then, let's look at this narrative and compare it to the foundational narratives that we have in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and see where does the Genesis story affirm our cultural narrative, because we all get part of the story right, but also how does Genesis 1 through 3 critique or push back or challenge the stories that we tell? Because we want to live, we want to tell a story that's worth living and the first thing we need to see as we look at this narrative of I decide what's right is that the scriptures, the biblical narrative, affirms that as human beings we are moral creatures who should care about what's right. Um, there is this enormous pressure on us as people uh, to do the hard work of deciding what's right and then doing what's right. And do you feel that in our, in our culture that, that there's this sense of we should do what's right? And clearly in Genesis chapter 2, we're, we're created with moral choices and consequences in mind. Uh, consider again those verses we just read a moment ago. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. This is the very first command ever in the Bible. Command to eat freely of every tree in the garden. Um, and then the second one, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely eat die. And so these verses, they contain these early commands. They set up a moral universe framework of consequences where human beings are obligated to understand and do what is right. And that, that deeply affirms our culture. Because you think about it, we live in many ways in a deeply morally concerned culture. We expect people to do what's right. 
We want to hold them accountable when they, when they do what's wrong. And there's this pressure on us to decide what's right, that you need to understand and decide what's right and to live consistently with that. I think everyone agrees that we need to be good. I mean, just think about the pressure that's on businesses, not just to be successful, but to be good. Google, for example, was founded with a kind of a core value of don't be evil, which I think they've since updated to, to do the right thing. Or there's even the whole phenomenon of the, the benefit corporation. Maybe you've heard of this. Companies like Patagonia, which actually kind of pioneered a new type of for-profit company, but the actual incorporation that they have as a for-profit company uh, builds in an obligation not only to make a profit, but to do good for the community and the environment. We have this moral sense. Western culture is deeply passionate about issues of injustice and equality and, and equal opportunity for all, especially for those who are vulnerable because of their gender, race, or socioeconomic status. And that's a really good thing. And you certainly don't have to be a Christian to have a moral code by which you live. Many people who would not claim the Christian story are, are deeply moral. In fact, I have little doubt that there are men and women who are not Christians who have lived a, a, a more morally courageous life than I have. So there's, a great, there's great pressure on us to decide what is right in our culture, to live a moral life. And yet, many people do not believe in moral absolutes. So we, we feel this pressure on the one hand to decide what's right, to live what's right, but we struggle because we can't decide what's right. At least we feel like we can't ever say that we believe something is right in an ultimate sense. So we have a desire, even a sense of obligation, that I should decide what's right. But without the category of moral absolutes, we struggle to be able to do this. Why? Well, first we struggle because we do have this deep-seated moral belief that we can't seem to escape, but we're not very good in our culture at explaining why. Why is it that we have this sense of moral obligation? We struggle to answer the most basic ethical question, which is where do right and wrong come from? And yet we all seem to intuit certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We seem almost to be hardwired for it, and uh, scientists and neuroscientists and those who study stories and culture are increasingly seeing this to be true, that it seems like human beings are just hardwired for, for morality, and I recently read an article from the website Science 2.0, and, and one of the things that the article points out is that nearly all fictional worlds, that is, worlds that you know, authors have created, whether it's movies or books or comic books, all fictional worlds, whether they were created by religious people, atheists, or whether, and this is a study they did of a whole set of literature, or when the author's beliefs were unknown, that every fictional world that was created, there was a sense that God existed, at least in the sense that the moral decisions made by the characters in the story were linked to their ultimate destiny. That regardless of their worldview, authors couldn't help but creating fictional worlds in which it seemed that there was a, an absolute sense of right and wrong and that people's choices were linked to their ultimate destiny. Here's a, a quote from the article I just thought was so fascinating. He said, in children's stories, this can be very simple. The good guys win and the bad guys lose. 
The narratives for older readers, the endings is more complex with some loose ends dangling or others ambiguous. Yet the ultimate appropriateness of the ending is rarely in doubt. If a tale ended with Harry Potter being tortured to death and the Dursley family dancing on his grave, the audience would be horrified, of course, but also puzzled. That's not what happens in stories. Do you get what the author is doing there? Not only would, would we as the readers or the audience of this story be horrified, but we'd also just kind of scratch our heads and say, wait, like, that's just not how stories work. Like, that's not a good story. Uh, another example of this is in the TV show How I Met Your Mother. There's a, a whole kind of string of episodes where the character Barney Stinson is trying to convince his friends that they've, uh, they've totally misunderstood the karate kid, that Johnny Lawrence is actually the good guy in the story. And that it's a terrible movie because he loses in the end. And that's funny as you're watching the show because we know, of course, Barney's completely under, misunderstood the Karate Kid. That's not how stories work. We all have an inescapable sense that right and wrong matter. But increasingly in our culture, we do not have a category to explain where it comes from. So the best we're able to do is explain it on... Uh, using the kind of the categories of evolutionary naturalism, and we say, okay, well, because these categories of morality helped us to survive, that's why we have them, that there was a, a herd instinct or that society worked better and the ones that had these sets of morals sort of thrived and those who didn't, didn't. It's just sort of a product of a evolutionary survival mechanism. But this leads us to a second problem. See, if our sense of right and wrong exists for survival purposes, not for truth-seeking purposes, then all conversations about right and wrong are really then just conversations about power and control. When we really push in here, we, we can't actually define anything as universally right and wrong for all people at all times and in all places. if all we have is sort of a sense that, well, this just helps us to survive. This is why most moral philosophers who take this seriously basically admit that there really isn't anything as right, such as right and wrong, in an ultimate sense, if you have an evolutionary naturalistic framework, that right and wrong are, are really just preferences. Richard Rorty, who was one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, who before his death in 2007, taught at Princeton and at University of Virginia and retired at Stanford. And he argued as a moral philosopher from this category of evolutionary naturalism. And he was really consistent in this. He said, this moral choices on this viewpoint are just preferences. And once a student asked him in class, if, if right and wrong are only preferences, then, you know, Dr. Rotary, what, what if I prefer to kill you? And his response was basically, well, that's a real bummer for me. Um, but in the end, even in that moment, he said, you know, to be consistent, I'm not going to say that's wrong. I would prefer that you don't kill me. But there's not an absolute sense of, of, in which that action is wrong. Rorty then tried to build, understanding this is a problem in the framework, he tried to build a, a a framework for human rights based on sentimentality, really this, that we should have a sense of empathy for our fellow creatures that would urge us not to harm them. But he understood that there's not some sort of 
human beings made in the image of God that obligates us to treat them. We just have to develop a sense of empathy. Uh, The difficulty with this, and this is the, the third problem here, is that what do you do when someone says, well, I don't want to be empathetic? See, the problem in this framework is that there are no grounds for moral obligation. What do I mean by that? I mean that you can say to someone, I don't like what you're doing, but you don't actually ultimately have grounds to be able to say, that is wrong. You can't say to someone, you must not murder, or you cannot abuse your child. All you're really left with is the ability to say, well, I don't like that you're doing those things. And then morality simply becomes a function of who has the power to enforce their preferences over others. Sort of a might-makes-right framework. Pastor Tim Keller points out that This situation in our culture leads us to a place where you can't really have a conversation about right and wrong with someone who disagrees with you. All you can do is just shout the other person down. You can't have a conversation with Barney about how he's completely misunderstood the karate kid. And for Christians, none of these problems should surprise us, though. Because when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they introduced into the world a moral relativism. It was the first instance of this narrative of, I decide what's right. And Genesis 2 shows us, though, that this is not how it ought to be. It gives us a clear framework for the feeling of moral obligation that we just can't seem to shake and the sense of right and wrong that is so deeply embedded in us. So again, if we look at these key verses in Genesis chapter 2, first notice in verse uh, 9. Verse 9 says, that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then The author goes on in verses 10 through 14 to give this description of the garden and the trees that were planted in it and the beauty of it. These were the verses that we unpacked last week as we talked about the theme of the garden being the very first temple, the place that God dwelled with his people. And then you get to verses 16 and 17 where we're given more information about these trees, these two trees in particular. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so what is this all about? Uh, what is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And why are Adam and Eve commanded not to eat from it? I mean, isn't this a whole sermon about the fact that we need to be able to decide what's right and wrong and have a, a sense of, of knowing good from evil? I mean, the knowledge of good and evil has to do with knowing what will lead to human flourishing and also, on the other hand, what will lead to human destruction and pain and suffering. So why shouldn't Adam and Eve want this? Uh, And why wouldn't God want them to have it? Well, it's not that Adam and Eve shouldn't have this knowledge or that God doesn't want them to have this knowledge. It's that human beings are incapable of having this knowledge as finite creatures. 
Let me say that again. It's that human beings are incapable of having this knowledge as finite creatures. If human beings want to live a life of flourishing, they must trust the God who made the world and knows how it works. You see, we will never have enough knowledge on our own to be able to make wise choices, to see all the possible implications of particular decisions that lead to flourishing all the time. There are so many unintended consequences to our choices. We see this again and again in history. For example, why does the Nobel Peace Prize exist? Because the founder of the, the prize, Alfred Nobel, Um, was horrified that his inventions, he was key in inventing high explosives, he was horrified that what he had kind of invented as a tool to be used in mining and that kind of thing, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, resulted in the deaths of millions of people in World War I and on and on. He wanted his name to be associated with peace, not with destruction. He never intended his inventions to be used that way. But they were. See, Adam and Eve were faced with a choice. It's a choice that we are all faced with as well. Will we trust the one who made us, who has given us nothing but good and beauty and joy to lead us into a life of continued flourishing? Or will we decide that we know better than God? and reject him to define right and wrong for ourselves. Brilliant Old Testament scholar John Salehammer points out the implications of these verses so clearly. He says, to enjoy the good, we must trust God and obey him. If we disobey, we will have to decide for ourselves what is good and what is not good. He says, while uh, for modern men and women such a prospect may seem desirable, to the author of Genesis, this is the worst fate that could have befallen humanity. Or even better, here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones explains it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. I just read this to Lucy the other night. Now God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them. Because if you do, you will think you know everything. You will stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him. And they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him. And life without him wouldn't be life at all. The way to life and flourishing is to rely on the instruction, the teaching of the one who knows everything and can keep us from ruining it all. In Psalm 19, you get again this idea of life and God's instruction is teaching linked together. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The way to life and flourishing is to trust something outside of yourself to define right and wrong for us because we can't decide on our own. And when we do, it always leads to ruin. Now, you may be thinking here, okay, Bill, I think, I don't know if I, maybe I don't even totally agree with you, but I think I'm following you here. 
But wouldn't that sort of lead Christians into a place of having a superior attitude towards others? It's sort of, well, they know God, and so they know what's right and wrong. Wouldn't that make them like kind of self-righteous or holier than thou? Like, I know what's right. You don't know what's right. I know the truth. You don't. And certainly Christians uh, have taken that posture at many times. But Christians can only have that posture if, if they, if we fail, as Christians often do, to fully understand and embrace the gospel. Because when Christians truly and fully understand and embrace the gospel, they don't say, I'm right and you're wrong. They say, we're both wrong. We're both desperately wrong and in need of someone to forgive us, to lead us, to empower us to live lives of sacrificial, costly love and obedience. Christians who have been deeply impacted with the gospel uh, never point the finger and say, you're wrong and I'm right. They always say, we are both wrong. We are both broken. We need someone who can rescue us, to forgive us, to make us right. Because you see, in light of the pressure that we have to make the right choice, and also coupled with our inability on our own to be able to decide right from wrong, what we desperately need is someone who is right. We need someone who is right for right and wrong to make sense, we need more than laws. We need a lawgiver. You see, knowing right from wrong means trusting and knowing a person. Because at the heart of reality is not a big legal code somewhere sitting up in outer space of a book of rules. Now, the core of reality is a triune God pulsing with love and life and relationship. His person, his character is the standard and source for our sense of right and wrong. It's because we are made in his image that we have such an inescapable sense of both right and wrong and moral obligation. And in the New Testament, the, in the Gospel of John, John, who was one of Jesus' closest followers, you often hear him mentioned there's Peter, James, and John, one of Jesus' most intimate followers, as he introduces Jesus in the first chapter of his gospel. He calls him the Word, this underlying logic, wisdom, principle in the universe, which both the, the Jews and the Greeks had some sense of. But what John says is this Word, this logic, this universal truth is a person. And that that person took on flesh, became a human being in Jesus. That's why Jesus was like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, in the Christian story, right and wrong is not an abstraction to be memorized, but a person to know. A person who doesn't just tell us how to live, but showed us how to live. Who invites us into his yoke to learn from him. A person who, who suffers the worst effects of moral corruption and wrongdoing in the world and yet offers forgiveness. The person who fulfills all of the promises of the Old Testament about a day that would come when God's law, when his teaching, his instruction would be written on our hearts. Listen to this promise from the book of Jeremiah, which uh, after we're finished with this series, we're actually going to be spending a number of weeks in the book of Jeremiah. Listen to this promise from God spoken by Jeremiah. Look, the days are coming. 
This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, that's a way of talking about God's people, and I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And after his resurrection from the dead, he ascends into heaven and he sends his Holy Spirit to empower his people to know him, to obey him, to do what they could never do. Indeed, we're never designed to do on their own. Think about this for a minute, that Adam and Eve, in the most perfect environment, before sin entered the world, when they didn't rely on God, turned away from him. We were never meant to live without the empowerment of God's spirit. Certainly not in the garden, and we're certainly completely incapable outside of it. So how do we take a next step here? Well, there's two, two simple ideas for us. First, listen to the story you see, we, we know someone by their words and their deeds. When you want to get to know someone, you listen to what they say, you watch what they do. If you want to get to know the person who is right, the someone who is right, the God of the universe who has come, who loves you, who gave his life for you, the scriptures are the way to do it. It is in the scriptures that we find God's words and deeds. So listen to his story. Listen to his story and then talk to the author. That's what prayer is. Prayer is responding to God's word with our words. We can speak to God because he has first spoken to us. We speak and pray because God is a speaker. And we are made in his image. So pray. Ask for help. Ask for the grace to know what is right and to do what is right. Ask for forgiveness, for grace and for mercy when we fail to do what is right, because we all do regularly fail to do what is right. See, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they chose to decide right and wrong for themselves, they were cut off from the tree of life. But Jesus opens the way to life again. And communion, the Lord's Supper, is the new tree of life. Not because it is magic, but because when it is received in faith, it nourishes us, leads us back home, back to the garden, to grace. Grace that says you don't have to be good enough. Grace that welcomes you again and again. Grace that lets, love, lets you love God's teaching. Grace that empowers you to obey. Not because you have to. Not to earn any favor or merit from God. Because those things you have freely and abundantly in Jesus. And you couldn't earn them anyway. Grace that empowers you to obey because you want to. Because for you, loving Jesus and obeying Jesus have become one and the same thing. Because his commands are not burdensome. So together, now let's celebrate that meal 
that meal of life and that meal of grace in the Lord's Supper.